in turning to Acts chapter 15. We are in Acts chapter 15 as, uh, as, uh, as there are guests here this morning. I just want to also mention to you, thank you for joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Um, we have been walking through this, this book of Acts, watching the gospel make inroads in, into places that had, that had never before heard the name of Jesus Christ. So as, as we are about to read Acts 15 in just a few moments, I want to set the table again for the context for, for what's happening. So the gospel had been making steady progress into Gentile territory for some time now. Now Luke, the author of the book of Acts, well, God's the author, but Luke is the, the hand that moved the pen. Um, Luke has written in such a style that it's the history and the story of, of Acts is quite compressed. Um, and what I mean by that is it, it might seem to you that since Acts 1 till this morning in Acts 15, it's been like, okay, maybe nine months or two years or something like that. Uh, but it's actually been, been actually closer to 15 years. Can we bring those lights right back up? Because I'm way down and I can't see anything. So thank you very much. Um, perfect. Uh, hey, by the way, I, I want you to know that, that everyone running the stuff back there is like age 18 and down. And can we thank them for their service? I'm so grateful for all of those serving back there. So um, thank you guys for doing what you're doing this morning. Um, so, so it's been, in fact, about 15 years since Acts 1, where Jesus, as he was ascending into heaven, saying, hey, I, I want to commission you to go to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost ends of the earth. In fact, we're going to read in the story today that, that the Apostle Peter stands up at the council in Jerusalem and mentions what happened with Cornelius. Remember Cornelius from Acts 10? Well, that happened like 10 years ago uh, from when he's talking now. So, so the storyline is compressed. It makes it read like you know we're just months apart from each other when, in fact, it's been uh, 15 years since the ascension of Christ. Where we're going to read today, is, as scholars would say, like A.D. 48. 849, somewhere around that time. Paul and Barnabas has, have returned from their first missionary journey. We have a slide uh, reminding us of, oh, yeah, where did they go on their missionary journey? They went, you see, from Antioch at the top there um, in the right corner. Antioch, they left there, they went to Cyprus, then, then they went all into Galatia. Uh, and then circled back around. What they were doing there was taking the gospel again into Gentile territory. There are people there who had never heard the name of Jesus Christ. This was the glorious expansion of the gospel. This was God's intention for the growth of the gospel, more and more people being brought into the fold of the kingdom of God. This was glory. And God was actively at work, more and more people being drawn to Jesus Christ. And while all this is happening and, and coming to pass, a major doctrinal or theological division was occurring. And it was troubling and it was difficult because some Jewish believers, so they had been raised as Jews but then had come to faith in Jesus Christ, some Jewish believers were struggling with the fact that the Gentile believers were not kind of conforming to their own Jewish 
practices. They weren't following the laws. They weren't following the ceremonial laws. And especially, they weren't getting circumcised, which was, in the Old Testament, as you remember, the mark of your inclusion into the covenant community of God was by being circumcised. So, so they had done this for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now that the gospel's going forth, I, I think there's this gladness that the gospel's going forth from these believing Jews, and yet they were requiring circumcision and a following of the laws in order to declare these Gentiles to be saved. A huge conflict. Why is this conflict so huge? Because the gospel itself is at stake. If this issue in Acts 15 had not been clarified, things would have splintered. You'd have apostles preaching one gospel over here and and another apostle preaching another gospel over here. Uh, We know from the book of Galatians, if you might recall, that even the apostle Peter himself, he was kind of wavering. He was in Antioch. He was hanging with Gentiles, eating with them. Then these Judaizers came in and they said, hey, these people are not saved until they're circumcised. They're not part of the covenant community. And for a little while, Peter, if you remember this, he kind of started believing that. And so he, he pulled away from the Gentiles and Paul showed up and said, what in the world are you doing, Peter? That might be a paraphrase. <laughs> but that's, that's the essence of what he was saying. You're, you're, you're denying the power of the gospel by not eating with these Gentiles. This was huge. It had the potential to absolutely disrupt the whole church. They were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The church in Antioch was disrupted, and a lot happened. So this is, that's, the, that's the setting of the table. Now we're just going to read uh, verses 1 through 35 as we hear how God, in his sovereign wisdom, helped the church to navigate this challenging gospel issue. I'm reading again from Acts 15. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider This matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives to for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep these yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, this morning we come to you and we read what seems like a, a really kind of antiquated issue. Uh, this doesn't seem to have direct impact into our world today. Nobody that we're aware of or at least not that I'm aware of, is, is preaching the gospel and saying you must be circumcised, you have to follow the dietary laws. And so, Lord, our temptation may be in this moment to kind of check out, 
because this doesn't really apply to us. We, we don't see the correlation here, maybe. But I pray that by your spirit, you would enliven this word to us so that we could see actually the way this absolutely impacts our lives in a day-to-day way. And uh, I pray that you would help me uh, by your spirit to help that to come out. And so as we seek to expose the text this morning, Lord, just bring us help, bring me help, and bring the hearers here help as well as we want to hear your word and then respond to it. We pray this together, asking for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May God so give us that kind of help. So what's the main issue in all these 35 verses? Uh, By the way, this is the challenge with some of these longer accounts. Like, man, there's a lot here. How could we ever get to cover this? Well, I I just wanted to boil it down. What's, What's the main issue? What is the one thing that needs to be solved? It's this. It's this question. How is one to be saved? What does God require of us in order to be saved? And this passage that's before us, uh, this is a pivotal moment in the life of the church. Again, the, the, the church is now expanding far beyond Jerusalem. This is God's intention for the global gospel to go and reach people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We know that to be the case. This is the moment that, that, that kind of rubs against it because now what we're actually seeing here is the epicenter of Christian faith no longer just remaining in Jerusalem. Obviously, Jerusalem for a time it was. That's where the, the disciples were. That's where Jesus was. And, and so it was the epicenter. But now, actually, Antioch, this young church, this newer church, like that's become kind of the, the mission-sending agency. And, and there's a lot going on in Antioch. And, and as Jewish Christians, especially Jerusalem Christians, some of them, they, they didn't like this shift. They, they wanted people you know, who became Christians to kind of look and act like them and adopt their laws. And in fact, some were distorting the very gospel of God. So what happens at this council? I want to take time to just walk us through, again, review. What happens at this council? There is this burning issue. In fact, uh, by the way, when you read the book, the epistle of the Galatians, most commentators believe that Galatians, again, written to those countries in which Paul and Barnabas had gone and established churches, Most believe that Galatians was written just before this council that convened in Jerusalem. So this is a burning issue. It's hot. It's, you know, when when that happened between Paul and Peter, most commentators believe that was before what happens here because evidently Peter had quite a change of heart because he's the first one to speak. Well, let let me read again verses 7 through 11 just to, to keep it fresh in our minds. The council floor is happening, and there had been much debate, and I'm picking it up from verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's calling back to when he went uh, and and preached the gospel to Cornelius. Remember, he was a God-fearer, and he believed in Christ, and many people came to the Lord, and the Holy Spirit fell on them, as he continues to say. So look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us, 
And, verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So he's saying this. Listen, God cleansed the Gentile hearts through their faith in Jesus Christ by the proclamation of my mouth, brothers. You know, again, the whole church is there, it says. Uh, the whole church plus the apostles and the leaders. And this was a huge moment in church history. And he says, God gave them the grace to be cleansed by faith. He, he gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. There was no positional distinction between us, between believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And he concludes by saying, uh, we are all saved by faith and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in verse 11. He's, he's saying this. He say, listen, we're not saved by grace alone and with the addition of works. He said, no, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. Not, not grace plus anything, not, not grace plus works, nothing, just by the grace of the Lord alone. Now, why is circumcision, you might be wondering, such a huge issue here? Why is it so significant? Well, again, we know that the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was the sign of circumcision. So if you were in the Old Covenant and you had a child, I'm looking out at some people who have some uh, wonderful young children. On the eighth day, if that was male, you would take him to the temple and he would be circumcised and he would be marked as part of the covenant community. Imagine with me that for, in fact, thousands of years, this had been the case in your family, and, and you've always grown up with this, and you yourselves as a male, for example, as a Jewish person, were, were circumcised, and it was, it was a mark of that, the fact that you belong. And now the covenant of grace is upon you, and the new covenant is here, and, and, and now, again, you're seeing these people you know, say, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, but all these things that you held dear to you, like circumcision, like um, not eating food that's been, uh, in one sense, polluted to idols. Like, you've held fast to that because God was asking you to do that. Do you understand? Do you, I mean, I, I have a degree of compassion for these Jewish believers who are having a little bit of trouble because, like, this has been so much a part of their history. And yet, the Jerusalem Council, they had to deal with this. Because if, if that belief was perpetuated, it was then becoming a false gospel. Do you remember Paul in Galatians when he said, I, I wish people, I mean, he doesn't mince his words, I wish the people that were promoting this false gospel, the false gospel of faith in Christ plus works following the law, I wish that they would emasculate themselves. Do you remember that? That's how hot this issue was. I wish that they would do that to themselves because they need to realize what they're doing. They're presenting a false gospel. Peter says, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul later, you know this verse, and, and as I read it afresh, I pray that it would fall on you in, in, in a fresh way. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. Dear friends, there's a reason that through the Pauline epistles as he's traveling and then, and then writing back to those churches that he either planted or helped establish some leadership in, this was a recurring theme through the epistles because people were being confused from time to time like, okay, is it, is it just faith? Or is it faith plus my obedience that, that really makes me righteous before God? And, and this was needing to be a regular point of gospel clarity. And that's why Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. That's why he included it here in Ephesians. It's why this was a theme throughout this time. This was such a huge transitional period from Judaism to now Christianity. And, and these themes needed to be run home again and again and again. He says it this way in Galatians 2.16. We know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So he, he actually, in, those, in that one verse, he just repeats himself, uh, says the same thing again a second time, so that it's crystal clear. These troublemakers, these Judaizers, they were causing havoc. They were taking away people's confidence in their justification, in their status before God. They were causing confusion. And so when Paul writes and when Peter addresses, there's like, let's not be unclear here. We are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. One way we could say it is the gospel plus anything equals nothing. The gospel plus anything, it, it equates to nothing. If we add anything to the gospel, well, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus Christ, but you also, you also have to do these things in order to be acceptable before God. Either the gospel is to the glory of God or it becomes, if we add things, it's to the glory of man. And God is not interested to share his glory with us. Praise the Lord. Because if he did, then this would be an awful gospel. It would be all on your shoulders and on my shoulders. But this is the glory of the gospel. It's not. It's not on our shoulders. It's all on his and his perfection and what he bore for us. This was such a huge issue. Uh, let me say it a different way. Christ plus anything equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus nothing equals everything. All the glory, all the glory, all the glory goes to God alone because he alone is the one who can save us. And as this was under great attack in the early church, these, these elders, these apostles, they needed to meet together and get this right. In like manner, so do we need to get this right. In like manner, so do we as the church need to make sure that we don't stumble on the gospel. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in the application. Um, but we must not lose our grip on the gospel. Because if we do, we have lost it all. If you and I, if we get confused about how our justification happens, if we think that it is faith plus a work or two or five or 
a lot of them, then we've, we've lost our way. And we, we're now producing and uh, advancing a false gospel. So the church must hold on carefully. What else? Let me go back to now the Jerusalem Council. What else happened? Well, Paul and Barnabas got up and started declaring about how the work of God was happening and, and, and people were getting excited hearing the work of God. And then James stood up. Do you know this guy, James? He was, he was later called James the Just. This is, this is the, the half-brother of Jesus, so he, he grew up with Jesus. This is James. He was called James the Just because he was very pious He's known to, to have been probably the lead uh, elder, the lead, the lead leader in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem church. Um, but apparently when he spoke, people, people listened well. And, and I want to read again what he says and then walk through it because it can be a little bit confusing. So uh, look with me at verse uh, 13. Paul and Barnabas had just finished speaking. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is another way of saying the name Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name. And with these words of the prophets, they agree, just as it is written. And he's, he's reading those words of the prophets. Let me drop down to verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So this, this kind of might be a little tricky. It might seem like, okay, James, what exactly are you saying? Are you, are you saying that it isn't by uh, faith in Christ alone? Are you saying it's faith in Christ alone plus, you know, just at a few of the laws? He's, he's actually not saying that. Uh, let me read from the ESV study Bible here for a moment because I think they say it better than I could. Uh, it says this, James agreed with Peter that they should not trouble the Gentiles with the ritual laws, but he knew that the Gentile Christians would have contact with Jewish Christians who still kept the ceremonial provisions, including laws about sacrifices, festivals, unclean foods, and circumcision. So he offered a proposal by which Gentile Christians could have fellowship with Jewish Christians and avoid giving unnecessary offense. Gentile Christians should abstain from certain things because in every city there are still Jews who observe these ceremonial laws and think them to be important. The first three requirements seem to be contextually sensitive and designed for these specific circumstances. Abstention from food offered to idols, uh, from blood, and from strangled meat. The fourth requirement, dealing with sexual immorality, was of course not a contextual or optional standard of obedience like the other three. It may have needed special emphasis and clarification because many Gentile consciences were so corrupted that they did not hold to a high standard of sexual purity and needed to be reminded of those standards. Here's what, here's what I think that helpfully says. Let me put it in my own words now. In every city all over, God still had people who were holding to the Jewish traditions. Even in places like Antioch, which you saw on the map, that's, that's 
kind of far away from Jerusalem. And then, and then in Antioch and Pisidia, you remember that town? There, were, there, were, there was a synagogue there that Jew, Paul and Barnabas went and taught in the synagogue. So that there were Jewish Christians all over the place. And here's, here's what he's saying. Gentiles, you are fully welcome into the family of God by putting your faith and trust in Christ alone. However, we're in a time where, you know, between the two covenants, and there are, there are, there are Jewish Christians that you're going to come into contact with who, who really love the fact that they are circumcised and who really want to exercise purity in what they eat. Now, you have liberty. You have liberty to eat. Actually, Paul says this later in Romans, right? He says, you have liberty to eat meat offered to idols because the idol isn't real anyway, so it can't really taint it, so you have liberty to do that. But he said, for the time being, could you, you know, if you do this, he didn't make it a requirement of salvation. He said, if you do this, you will do well. So, you know, food uh, that was strangled. There were particular sensitivities on the behalf of Jewish Christians that James was appealing to and saying, Gentiles, you are so welcome in the kingdom of God. Would you do this? If you do it, you would do well. So those three ceremonial things, those, those food-like laws, that's what he was saying. Related to sexual immorality, that was not a negotiable because they had the teaching, the clear teaching of Jesus on that. In particular, because these Gentiles were, were populated in places that, that actually um, to offer yourself sexually was a form, at times, a form of worship to pagan gods uh, and because it, this was so rampant, um, James and the Holy Spirit, evidently, and the whole council thought that it was wise to remind them, okay, stay away from these things because you don't want to unnecessarily offend your Jewish brothers. On this, let me say, this you need to do because this is God's command. Not as a requirement for salvation, but as the outflow of salvation. So that's what James is, in fact, speaking when he's speaking about the law. Now, Calvin, John Calvin helps us here when he talks about, again, just to remind us together, what is the, what is the purpose of the law? There's a threefold purpose of the law. Just state this and remind us of this quickly. The law reveals God. The law was given, so it, it reveals God. So we see in the law who God is, what's important to him. So the law reveals God and, and reveals then our need for redemption, right? This is this is what we rehearsed on the New City Catechism. What does the law require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. And, and who of us has that? And so that was what the law was designed to do, to help us see, wow, I can't keep the law. I need a savior. I don't have the ability to keep the law. So it was given to help us see our need for redemption. It was it was given to restrain evil, that, that by the law, this would be a... a Maintain order in civil life. And then thirdly, the law reveals to us what pleases God. So when we look at the Ten Commandments, for example, we see that it pleases God for us to live with one another in such harmony that we don't kill one another or that we don't covet one another, that, that those are the things that please God. That's not all that pleases God, but it gives us a guide and a format and a way. And then Jesus arrives on the scene, and what did he do to the law? But he fulfilled the law, and he expanded the law to, to the degree that he said, okay, in the Old Testament you would have said, like, don't commit adultery with someone. Well, now I'm saying, 
saying to you because I see your heart. That's what, that's what Peter says in verse 11. I see your heart, the God who sees hearts. He said, now, if you even look at another person with lustful intent, that's like committing adultery in your heart. So he expands the law and he brings it into its fulfillment as God now writes the law on our hearts. That's what he does for every Christian believer. He writes the law on our hearts. So, so James's appeal, uh, which again is confirmed by the Holy Spirit and the council, is to appeal to them to be wise, to be loving, to be considerate of those who are still making their way out of that old covenant time and into the new covenant age. And, and we see that Paul will address these issues later in the book uh, of Romans. Now, let me, there's a lot more that could be said, but I, I know I've already said a lot. I want to I jump into, okay, how does this apply to you? What difference does this make in your life uh, today? First point of application, um, the gospel is the matter of first importance. If we get the gospel wrong, as we said a few moments ago, uh, it all falls apart. If we don't understand how, how we are justified, if that becomes unclear, or if we hear another gospel that says, yep, you got to believe, but you also got to do this, anything uh, plus the gospel, again, it, it equals nothing. It's no longer the gospel. So we as a church body, we as individuals, we need, we must keep the gospel clear in our hearts. This is the matter, Paul would say, of First importance, for I delivered to you as that which was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel was the matter of first importance. And so I want to ask you, like in your heart and in your life, uh, what does that mean to keep the gospel of first importance? Yesterday at the uh, new members class, it was great to have uh, a bunch of seniors in high school and new members class as well as some others. And we took time together to rehearse the glories of keeping the gospel first in our hearts. I illustrated it by sharing a personal story of, you know, in, in my own home, if, if, for example, Julie, um, hard that this may be to some of you to think of this, but if, if Julie sinned against me in a, in a way that caused me to, like, not want to forgive her, and, you know, that can happen from time to time, right? Um, if I am holding on to the gospel as a matter of first importance in my heart, how does the gospel bring, how is it brought to bear on the fact that Julie is going to sin against me from time to time? It, it, it comes to bear in this way. Um, if, if God has forgiven me of all of my sin, if I remind myself of, of who I once was, dead and buried in my sin, I, I was not alive, and God, by his own power, through the power of the Spirit, gave me faith. He regenerated my heart. And now he's forgiven me of all of my sin. What business does Jeremy Bell have to do with not now forgiving his wife? Like, do you see how the gospel works? If we keep the gospel first in my heart, like, Lord, you have forgiven me so much. And now my wife sins against me. And, and though it may sting, though I may not like it, Though maybe we can have conversation about that, at the very end of it, I need to forgive my wife because look at how much God has forgiven me. The glory of the gospel, keeping it first in our hearts, 
It helps us. This is a matter of, of unity in our hearts toward one another. It's also a matter of unity in the church as we, as we relate and as we remind ourselves your standing before the Lord this morning. If you are in Christ, you are fully justified. You're not more justified now than you the day when you first came to Christ. So I believe I was born again when I was eight years old, and I don't even know what year that was. That was back in the 1900s. The fact is, I am no more justified today as I was at, I believe, at eight years old. And I forget that. And probably you forget that about yourselves, too. We are so accustomed to a, a works righteousness. And, and if we fumble around with the gospel, then we get confused. And we think that, that we can't lift our hands in joyful worship because, you know, last night I said something to somebody that, that was wrong. And, and God's probably not, not smiling on me today. No, that, that's a false gospel. That's, that's not true. God has forgiven you. Not because of your behavior, but because of his grace. For by grace you have been saved. Do You see, we, we need to keep the gospel first in our hearts. Keep it in that primary place where we see it. And in fact, let me, let me illustrate one other way that keeping the gospel first in our heart helps us. It, it helps us to be motivated to pursue righteousness. How, how, does, it, how does it help us to do that? Well, when we are saved by faith in Christ alone, we are given a new nature. Paul says that very, very clearly. We are new creations in Christ. We have been fully justified. In fact, the power of sin has been what? You say it for me. Broken. Amen. The power of sin. It's been broken. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle with it anymore, right? Um, because we can. However, its power has decidedly been broken. We have been justified by him. We have, we have been given the power over sin. Now, the resurrection power that, that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us by the Holy Spirit. We now have power to say no to sin and yes to Christ. We now have the power to put off the desires of the flesh, and to take on the desires of God. We have the power to say no to those old ruts and patterns of ways of living that we were once accustomed to. We now can forge a new path by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. It all connects back to the gospel. The power to pursue righteousness, to pursue God, to pursue Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I want to be more like you. It's it's in the gospel because the gospel tells us where our righteousness comes from. It's not from ourselves. It's from Jesus Christ. So, so we are the sons. We are the daughters of God. We have the power of God within us. I just want to encourage you that, that whatever you may be battling today, the power of the gospel in you means that you can have victory over that thing, that God will grant you the power to persist in enjoying freedom over that thing, whatever that thing may be. I know that for some of you, there is real struggle at times. For me, there's real struggle at times. But what I want to say is this. If the gospel is powerful enough to take a dead heart like mine at the bottom of the ocean, like Chris in the new members class said yesterday, we were like dead people on the bottom of the ocean. 
And if the gospel has the power to change my heart, to make me a new creation, to pull me up out of the ocean by the grace of God, if it has the power to do that, do we not think that the gospel now, the spirit living in us, will give us the power to overcome? I'm not trying to say this is easy, dear friends. I'm just trying to remind you of the power of God in you, the gospel of God living in you through the Holy Spirit. And if we fumble it, if we twist it, if we lose sight of it, do you see how it wreaks havoc on us? It doesn't position us to enjoy all that God has for us. And these guys in this chapter, they knew that, that there was a lot at stake here and therefore they called this council and, and they met together. And by the way, I don't, I don't think this is the main point of Acts chapter 15, but I just want to say how thankful I am that we are in partnership together um, in our denomination because it matters. Because if, if Antioch was just this, you know, lone church just doing their own thing, they didn't have any partnership with anybody, they weren't planted out or they didn't have relationship, like this would have maybe taken down the church because these Judaizers would have come in and been persuasive to some people and not persuasive to others and eventually the church may have split and that which was God's glory now gets divided and do you see the power of partnership? So, you know, Antioch, there's trouble there. Uh, Jerusalem, they get together, they come together, they decide, they pray. Apparently the Holy Spirit was leading them and, you know, just the power of partnership, the, the blessing of being together as God's people with other churches that we can come together and decide and pray and seek the face of God and seek resolution and move forward. I'm, I'm thankful that we're not a, a lone church here on God Shall Road in Souderton. I'm thankful that we're not just here alone, but that, that there are other brothers and sisters who, who care for us and pray for us and we have relationship together. Two weeks ago, I was on a senior pastor's retreat just for an overnight, and uh, uh, there are nine other churches in our region, and so I was with nine, nine pastors and our regional leader, Jared Mellinger, and, and we talked about the power of God at work in our church. So I got to brag about some things about you, and then I shared some things that you know I, we we're praying for for the future. And as I heard this from every guy, every senior pastor there, it was just like, Lord, thank you that we get to do this together. Why does partnership work? Because we believe that we can accomplish more as we work together in the gospel. One other way, just to encourage you, uh, one of the guys there was Stephen Bound. His, uh, he's the senior pastor of a, of a church in, in Frankfurt, Philadelphia. I haven't yet been to that church, but I've been really close by to it. And I remember the neighborhood, and it's a rough neighborhood. And he says, we, we don't have any ability or much ability from, our, from the people of the church to, to bring forward tithes. He said, we have almost no men in the church because there's such a vacuum of men. They, they don't want to stay with their families. And, and, and so we, we have some children and mothers or more often than not, grandmothers who are raising children with no mother or father present. And he said, so, so where are we going to get operating costs covered by? Do you know how that church is in operation? It's because you are faithful to give of your tithes and offerings and we give 10% of what, what we receive to Sovereign Grace who then distributes out where there is need. And so for the past five years, four years I think it is actually, um, we have, have been giving to that church so that it could keep its doors open so that right now in Philadelphia, the gospel is being proclaimed to people who need to hear the gospel. That's because of your generosity. That's because of what the Lord does when we work together in partnership in the gospel. And, and this is 
on display here in Acts 15. It's, it's a godly and wonderful principle. The second, and with this, the final application that I just want to ask God to work in our hearts is this. Uh, love others in matters of Christian liberty. So I want to go back to what we heard this morning. Um, the second part of the, the answer to question number seven was this. What God commands should what? Do you remember? Always be done. Okay, what God commands in Scripture, his commands, we should always do those. What God forbids should what? Never, right? What God commands should always be done. What God forbids should never be done. It's a great principle for this. So what are the areas that are not, what about the areas that are not expressly spoken to in Scripture? or expressly forbidden. How do, we, how do we walk this out, church? Uh, again, let's be a church that obeys God where, where he commands, we do it. And where he expressly forbids, we, we stay away from it because we want to honor him. But what about those, those areas where there's latitude and discretion needed uh, as we bear with one another in love? Well, what was one of the issues back in this day? It was obviously, it was meat that was offered to idols. You know, these these Jewish folk were just troubled in their heart that someone could eat, you know, a piece of meat that was offered to a pagan idol. Again, you know, an idol, it didn't reflect any actual reality. And so Paul later in Romans said, you know, Christian, you are at liberty to eat that meat if you want to eat that meat. Um, but what the appeal is here is to love one another. So for us, I don't think we're struggling with forms of meat, but, but there may be other things that are, are up to negotiation. They are up to conscience, like forms of entertainment or uh, address or, or appearance or media or other things. Um, and so I think the principle that we want to bring home from, from what the Holy Spirit was in fact saying here is, let us love one another. Let us exercise charity toward one another where, where something isn't expressly forbidden by God or where it's not expressly commanded by God and there's, there's some latitude here. Here's the call, dear friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let us love one another. If you may disagree with, with the conscience, a, a matter of conscience with someone else, um, the Lord calls us to forbear. If you are aware, however, that your freedom causes others to stumble, well, then love constrains you to say, okay, maybe in the presence of that person, I'm, I'm not going to flaunt my freedom because I love them and I don't want to cause them to stumble. That's what love does, right? Love considers. Love empties itself. Love cares. And so where there are matters that are open to conscience, you may, you may have a clear conscience about what you're doing, um, but if it causes someone else to stumble, take that into consideration. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It means how and when you might do it under that clear conscience comes into play. And so, dear church, as we, as we hold fast to the gospel, let us also hold fast to, to loving one another to considering one another in those choices that can at times be, be challenging. I mean, COVID was a real challenge for us because at times we, we all have opinions about COVID, everyone in this room. And, and there are times when we may have expressed those well and at times we didn't express those well. 
the, the call, I believe, of this text and what the Holy Spirit was saying here, the principle is let us love. Let us consider. We still have our consciences, yes, but let us love and consider. And so, uh, thankfully, hopefully, most of COVID is, is you know, get out of here. Um, but there's always going to be stuff. So let us love. This is the call. Let us love one another in matters of Christian liberty. What did, what did Jesus say in the last few moments before he went to the cross? What did Jesus say to his uh, disciples as they were gathered? He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love and charity and let us be gracious. You can have that conscience but the way we live that out, let us be charitable and let us love. So I want to invite the worship band to join me on the stage. Uh, we're going to close um, by just taking a little extra time to, to just focus on the gospel, to focus on the glory of Christ, and then sing, uh, I think, a very familiar song to us just that allows us to pause and slow down and just, uh, you know, just worship the Lord. As the song, Thank You for Saving Me. You know, at the end of all of these good and healthy conversations, what does it say? After they had spent some time, verse 33, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and those who had sent them. And Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. They were rejoicing in the gospel. They were glad for their partnership together. They were, they were loving one another. This, this issue had been brought to resolution and now they could just focus on the Lord and his goodness in saving them. None of them deserve to be forgiven and yet everyone who turns to Christ will be saved. And so I say to you, uh, even this morning, have you turned to Christ? Have you, have you trusted in Jesus? And have you placed your faith in Christ alone? to save you from your sins to the glory of God alone. And if you haven't, Christ died for your sins. Christ died that you might have life and forgiveness and joy and together now with believers all around you. I wanna invite you to stand with me. We have this opportunity. You can go ahead and stand right now. We're gonna close with these two songs.